some of you may know, our director of education, Carolyn Ahrens, is also an accomplished singer, songwriter, and recording artist. This summer, Carolyn's in the studio recording a new album. I've heard some of these songs, and thematically, they dig deep into exploring life with God. I wanted to let you all know Carolyn's new recording is being crowdfunded and distributed through a Kickstarter campaign, which is open until August 15th. You can learn more, access, and support her new music by visiting kickstartcarolyn.com. At its most basic, it doesn't reflect love. It doesn't reflect God's love. When you continually see something that is hurting someone and you keep telling them it doesn't exist. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is a special woman I've had the privilege of knowing for a number of years, Pastor Maisha Cuttingham, also known as Uni. She's planted a substance abuse recovery church in Jackson, Michigan. Pastor Maisha is part of a lineage of women in ministry. She carries the stories of her grandmother and great-grandmother, stories of faithfully responding to a call to ministry in spite of significant gender and racial barriers. If I were to give a theme for the last year or two of my life, it would simply be listening. Listening to God, listening to others, listening to my own heart, my reactions, emotions, impulses, and desires. And I'm learning that listening is not passive, but a helpful learning space, a movement towards intimacy with God and tenderness for others. And ironically, the more I listen, the less it seems I have to say. One of my favorite quotes comes from Herbert Spencer. It is as follows. There's a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. I've noticed in recent months a growing sense in the church of genuinely trying to listen to the plight of others. I've also noticed in some groups an undercurrent of contempt prior to investigation. What follows are insights born from experience and from a heart genuinely seeking to respond to the Spirit. Today, I invite you to join me in the spiritual practice of listening. I spoke with Pastor Cuttingham from her home in Jackson, Michigan. I'm curious to hear, as a woman of color and as a pastor, what have you been noticing in terms of this summer protests, Black Lives Matter reaction? What have you noticed that has encouraged you or brought kind of hope? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I am a black female pastor, but I am a black female pastor in a male 
a white male dominant denomination. So what that has looked like is I think about my grandmother in it, who was the, my grandparents were the very first black couple at their church for like 20 years. Wow. And so they overcame a lot of hurdles. My grandmother felt from the very beginning that she had been called to, to be a pastor and had been called to ministry. And even though the Free Methodist Church has said that they ordain women and are abolitionists, however, many do not actively do that. They do not pursue that. So my grandmother was shot down many times to actually pursue this. So she did ministry every chance that she got in a non-clergy kind of way, just lay ministry. And she built her entire life on that. So I have that memory in my brain as I'm working through what that looks like still being part of the FMC. And so one of the things that I've been encouraged about um, is that I've noticed specifically in our denomination, people are starting to talk about that. They're starting to talk about systemic racism within our denomination. And we are starting the conversations of moving past just having the conversation to what are we going to do now? So the follow through with action has been the most encouraging thing that I've been seeing. And even even the protests in general, because it's action. And then they're following up the action with here are some some resolutions here. We talk about racism as a public health crisis. Well, why? Because that can get funding to for to help bring resolutions and healing to communities that have been neglected and strategically torn apart. And so we see that throughout the different systems of, you know, in in systemic racism. We see it clear across the medical field. We see it in mental health. We see it in legal systems. We see it within the schools. We see it with lending for housing. You know, think about redlining. Like, what is that? Um, So all of these systems have been put in place. And so now my, my encouragement is seeing that people are starting to want to act and change. They're not just giving us lip service anymore, but they are wanting to see change and are pursuing change. Do you believe the change will be sustained? Will there be follow through? Honestly, the pessimism in me (laughs) is saying, no, when the fire dies down, people are going to stop stoking it. They're going to stop stoking the fire or people are going to grow content with a little bit of change and say, oh, we've, we've done a little bit. I'll give you a practical example of that. I'm just going to say the NFL. Stop and you look at the NFL. And they have, in the past, shot down any form of protest against police brutality. Colin Kaepernick, his whole ordeal. He lost his job and, and et cetera. And now the, the world is supporting the very same thing that he lost you know, his occupation as, as a football player. And so now... So you have that history, but now you see things like, oh, we're going to play Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Black National Anthem, beginning of certain football games. Or you'll see things like, we're going to allow people to kneel during the anthem, or some players are choosing to put Black Lives Matter and other um, professional sports on their jerseys instead of their numbers. So you'll see these things. Those seem like, oh yeah, that's sustaining. That's, that's going to be great. You see these changes, but in reality, what we want is accountability. We want accountability for police officers. We want accountability and change in the systems that were created unfairly. 
against that, you know, drastically impact the health mentally, physically, and emotionally of black people. We want that kind of change. But my fear is that some people will take those little tokens here. Here's the black national anthem and say, yay, we've arrived. Change right. is happening. We did enough. Right. Okay. Good enough. And then some people will lose the momentum. So that's my pessimistic side. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really long. But my optimistic side, on the other hand, is like, I think so many people are fed up. And this has been a global change, not just something in America, but a global conversation with global action. So I'm like, this has got to be able to sustain itself. Your story, your grandmother, right? Salt of the earth, wonderful woman who lost this year. And then here you being able to, you know, step in as a pastor and plant a church. Um, what is that like to be part of this lineage that didn't give space or room for a very gifted, ordained woman? And then here you you have, you know, what, what, what has that story been like? I never thought that I would be ordained without my grandmother being there. As we moved closer to my ordination, it was supposed to happen over the summer during our annual conference, right? And then COVID happened. And then I lost her a few months before it was supposed to happen. Her and I had talked about it for so long. And we had talked about her struggles and even her passion and how she accepted not being allowed to be ordained, but how she refused to let that stop her from doing ministry and still living out that calling that God put on her life. And and so I, I live in that, and that gives me encouragement that I can keep going. And also, though, I'm reminded of my grandmother's grandmother. Her name was Aunt Gnome. I don't know why everyone called her Aunt Gnome. <laughs> I don't know why my grandmother called her own grandmother Aunt Gnome. <laughs> but that was her name, and that was who raised her. Because my grandmother lost both of her parents at different times, tragically. And so her grandmother raised her. Well, Aunt Gnome was known as a backwoods preacher during a time when women did not preach. So she did it in fields. She did it in the woods. And she would gather men and women, and they would all go and listen to Aunt Gnome preach. When women were not allowed to do that, especially not a Black woman at that. So, so I feel like this has been ingrained in my DNA before I was even thought about being born. And so I think it's, it's just a fruition of, of God's promises. And it, and, it, and it may seem a very small scale, but it, it reminds me of Abraham in some ways. Where God's like, I'm going to bless your generations for, for you know, time to come, you know, or, you know, they're going to be as numbered as the sand, etc. And for us, for, for me, seeing my great-grandmother and then see, or is that great-great-grandmother? I don't know. Seeing my great, hearing about my grandmother and hearing about her grandmother. And, and that's what it feels like, though. It feels like God put a call on genetic, like through, through us, through our line. And so I do think that that exists in some kind of way. So that's, that's my encouragement. Mm -hmm. So you're part of this lineage, right? And that when, yeah. when you get behind the microphone, right, you're, you're carrying their stories. Yeah. And it looks different through each of us. 
it looks different because we we're in a different time and all of it comes with its risks. You know, it all has its risks of, of rejection from others. You know, it's just in a, even just in a different time. When you think of where things are at today and, and I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in the sense of I, I hold an optimism and I also hold a pessimism, but the tide does feel like it's turned. And you particularly notice it when the corporate world begins to uh, find morality of sorts and, you know, make these decisions. What do you want white folk to know? I definitely want them to know that saying Black Lives Matter is not saying that other lives don't matter. It's just saying that we have to take a realistic, humble, and painful view at the way Black lives have been treated throughout the years, hundreds of years. To be realistic about that and realize that we are saying Black lives matter because for hundreds of years, our lives have not mattered. So that would be one huge takeaway. Isn't it interesting how something so simple, I mean, I guess it's maybe reflective of something else, but that that, just that phrasing uh, has produced such animus in people that somehow it has to be one or the other, that if I say Black Lives Matter, then my life doesn't matter or something like that. Or or the easy out, which a lot of um, evangelical circles, you know, they have an issue with Black Lives Matter because they theologically do not support some of the things that Black Lives Matter supports. And the thing is that I, whatever my personal conviction is of something, I am mature enough to be able to say, you know what, this I support because this is a true statement. I don't, I don't ever walk across or meet someone in my life where I agree with everything they do 100%. Right. Right? How is this any different? I may not agree that Everyone needs to wear glasses. You know, I may think that I don't like glasses. I have personal biases against glasses. And so I don't think everyone should wear glasses. But at the heart of it, people wear glasses because they can't see. So what do I care most about? Do I actually care about people? Or do I care about the presumptions that come with caring about people? It shouldn't matter what others believe to justify whether you care about them as a human being. It doesn't matter what people do to just, you, you can't justify that. It doesn't matter how people live their life or don't live their life. That should not be a precursor for whether you love them. It feels like a diversion for people to kind of get caught in some areas that maybe they don't agree with and, and miss the big piece. It's the same thing where, um, you know, by and large, beautiful passionate, important protests, and then you have destruction of property not connected to the movement, but yet convenient to ignore the good and the important and the right because there's the other piece. In the end, you miss people. Systemic racism, how does that fit in spiritually? I think about um, in the Old Testament, the kings that you had in the Old Testament who followed God's law. So they put certain laws into place that would benefit people of Jewish background. 
the descendants of, of Jewish people. These kings had had these decrees and they had their systems formed to where if you were Jewish and you lived in this city, you've got it made. You've got the support you need. You've got the resources. You've got the community. You've got the spiritual guidance. Every aspect of life is found there. So what does that look like when Gentiles come into that? Oftentimes, the Gentiles were treated as if they weren't part of it. They didn't get to always reap the benefits of that, even though God had told them from the beginning to love the foreigner, to love those who who came in that were not like you, to take care of them, because to remember that they were once without a land themselves, so to remember where they came from. And even though God gave them that decree, that wasn't always played out. People didn't always receive them well. And so as a result of that, they, these, the people coming into that who were Gentiles, they didn't get the same benefits as everyone else. And, and that means coming into a culture, into a community where they don't have the things that they need and the very systems that were put in place were not put in place to protect them or to help them grow or to help them become successful because it was built for someone else. That's what systemic racism looks like. And that's how how we think about it in terms of the Bible. But then spiritually, when we see systemic racism, what we're seeing is a justification to not obey God's law of love at its most basic form. Systemic racism was not originally intent to, I'm going to intentionally keep black people down. But you could argue most of them owned slaves that signed the Constitution. So with that being said, yeah, it kind of was. But in the same sense that even after people recognized that slavery was bad and the, and, the, and the slaves were free, and everyone talks about Abraham Lincoln and how he freed the slaves, but he freed the slaves, but he also said that they weren't human beings that were worthy of the same basic human rights that white people would have. So if you're following my train of thought here, um, with, with that happening with, with Abraham Lincoln. So then the systems that were created throughout the years were not changed. They weren't checked. No one looked at that and said, you know what? This doesn't love people. The system works for the majority because for a very long time, the majority was white people. So the systems have continually helped white communities and helped white people in general. So there was never a time when people stopped and said, you know what, I think, I think everyone's right. I guess this doesn't reflect love. And so at its most basic, it doesn't reflect love. It doesn't reflect God's love. When you continually see something that is hurting someone and you keep telling them it doesn't exist. One of the things I've noticed that has encouraged me people at least to some extent being open to listen to others' experiences. So the baffling idea that somehow I am in a position as a white male to make a statement that racism doesn't exist. I mean, the the kind of audacity or arrogance to think that, you know, uh, these experiences that I do not have somehow, because I don't want them to exist, somehow aren't. So it, it does feel to me there's this shift, a movement of people at least being open to listen and learn and hear others' experiences. Do you see that occurring as well? I do see that occurring. Uh, it's, it's easy to 
to see the the opposite. It's easy to see those who are just stuck with, no, this doesn't exist. I'm going to fight this tooth or nail. And, you know, it's easy to see that and point that out. But the overwhelming majority that I've been experiencing is that people are seeing that this is a problem and that we have to do something about it. Right now, the majority is winning with that. And I am so grateful to see that. I'm grateful that I'm getting to see this in my generation. I was talking with my grandfather and he's like, I lived through the 60s. This is the modern day civil rights era you're in. He's like, what you do right now determines the future for your children and for their children. He said, don't give up. It's one thing to talk about these issues, you know, academically or, you, you know, these are highly personal, right? I mean, these come with stories and emotions and wounds. Like, I want to be sensitive to that and I want to be helpful. What's needed? What would help? What helps is getting involved in your local community. Seek out activists in your area. They exist. They've existed for many years. Seek them out. Have conversations with them. Ask them, how can I help? Here's what I have to offer, but more importantly, how can I help? And accept whatever way that they're offering you to help. And so that may look like getting involved with your city, like with your city town meetings, go to your city town meetings, know who your commissioner, your county commissioners are, have conversations with these people, ask them what changes are they going to make and support those who are trying to make those changes. You know, um, protesting is an obvious way, but even there's no only way of doing this. There's not one way to help. There's many ways to help. So you find people in your community who are doing things and you offer them support and you share your gifts and you share your talents and you share your encouragement and you share your finances with them who are making change. And as the, as you begin to interact with them, your heart begins to be changed even more. And you get to, to not only just give the love of Christ to others, but you also get to experience that in return as your heart is changed and, and turned even softer towards God. Yeah. This intersects with our spiritual life. This is hands and feet right there. I mean, that it transcends to me politics or whatever, right? This is human beings and this is a way we can respond. Yeah. It transcends theology. You know, as a pastor, I mean, I've sat into some, some circles and some meetings and conversations where everyone wants to theologize this. I think that's a word I just made up. Theologize. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know what it means. <laughs> We're going to run with that. Theologize. <laughs> they want to they wanna theologize this, this, this circumstance. Or they're like, well, what does the scripture say? Well, what is the number two commands of God? What are they? Love God and love others. You really need to comb the scriptures where God made it so simple. He gave you two main things, love God and love others. It's that simple. God made it simple for us. This next question is, is maybe a question that should have gone at the front, right? But, <laughs> but I know it's a stumbling block for people, and I actually think it fits in really well with what you just said. What is problematic with colorblind ideology saying, I don't see color? Why does this have to be, you know, why do we have to bring this up? 
Um, I love everybody. Right. Right. Good question. So one could argue that race is a social construct, right? Race is a social construct. It really doesn't exist. We created it to be able to identify people, to create communities of likeness, um, to because we feel comfortable, right? And plus, just in general of these are my people, right? Um, culture, you know, we have culture. And so, uh, but race in itself was a social construct. So the it has problem, no meaning though, biologically, right. but socially it, it holds meaning. Right, yes. exactly. Right. And so people take that, though, and they live that out to say, well, if race is a social construct, then it doesn't matter. I don't see color. But here's the problem. It may be a social construct, but race has always been a deciding factor for who gets what resources. So when you say I am colorblind, I don't see race. You're also saying, I don't see the mistreatment that you are facing. So even if I don't see race, guess what? The rest of the world does. So either you're going to help someone or you're not. And it negates the daily experiences, the historical, right? And I think that, that uh, I, I, mean, I think it's probably born out of a good heart that I don't, you know, I don't want to see this, but, but I potentially miss a really big part of you. It invalidates my experiences. It invalidates um, just my life in general. And, and I agree. Often, I believe that when people say I don't see race, they do say it out of a good heart. I agree with that 100%. I don't, because we're like the KKK, they're not going to say I don't see race, right? <laughs> Neo-Nazis, they're not going to say I don't see race. So with that being said, I do believe that when people honestly don't see that and they really believe that, that they have put on blinders unknowingly. They may have good intentions, but the damage it does is that everyone else sees my race. And for everyone else, I am denied basic things. What would you like to see the church do? I would like to see the church act. I think we have theologized this enough. I think, and I'll say it, we have searched the scriptures enough now the church needs to act. The church needs to not just be a place of diversity, because one could argue, well, we have people of different races in our denomination. True, but how many of them are in the most top positions of leadership? And if you don't have any, or if you can count on one hand, you're not diverse. That's a tokenism. We want to see change lived out. Like you said, the hands and feet of Jesus. We want to see people walk out what they're saying. We want to see the church standing up and showing with action that we care about what you're going through and we're going to help create change. I think it's really important for white folks to acknowledge their privilege, acknowledge that they're benefactors of systemic racism and systemic injustices, and then in, in acknowledging that, not getting lost in kind of guilt, but that becomes an honor to use one's privilege or voice to help lift others. And to me, the much of this, when it becomes obnoxious, it, it becomes, I don't want to lose my seat at the table kind of thing. 
And the the Jesus piece of first shall be last, last shall be first, that in giving others a voice, in giving up my seat, that that's, that's an act of worship. It's an act of learning to be more like Jesus. Are there any pieces left unsaid? One more thing. Since you brought up white privilege, white privilege, that phrase is so abhorrent to so many people because there's a misunderstanding about what that actually means. It doesn't mean that you have not experienced difficulties in your life. It just means that your race wasn't part of those difficulties. And no one is saying that someone is guilty of a crime because they've experienced white privilege. We're not beating people up because they've experienced white privilege. We're not saying, how dare you? You're terrible, right? But rather we're saying, you've benefited from this. Can you just recognize that? And can you see how you can help someone else who hasn't benefited from it? That's all it's saying. That's good. That's helpful. I can't tell you how grateful I am for you to share your experience, your insights. It means a lot. Well, I, I feel blessed that you even gave me the opportunity. You know, we go way back. <laughs> and so I, I feel so blessed that, that you thought of me and you cared that I had a voice. It's a gift to me and to all of us. That was Maisha Cunningham, pastor of Ravenbrook, of Recovery Church in Jackson, Michigan. You can learn more about her ministry at ravenbrookrecoverychurch.org. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.